I am thankful that you all made it out today. Um, Recording in progress. You all made it out today. Again, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles, have your pens or pencils, notes. Um, the last, the previous, um, previous meetings we've had has been centered around the topic of evangelism. Um, one of our meetings consisted of um, specifically advancing the kingdom of God and what that looks like for what that looks like from the Bible concerning the future. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9 that as the uh, land uh, as uh, that the knowledge of God the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the land as abundant as the waters cover the sea. We've read that also in Habakkuk. We've read in uh, Psalm 2 that the that the Father had given the Son the nations as his inheritance. Um, we've seen that all the nations through Abraham of the earth shall be blessed. And um, as it says in the scriptures, it was prophesied of Judah um, that from Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And that is to say that uh, Judah will reign and rule. And that Judah, from the tribe of Judah, will uh, arise (coughs) rulership and kingship. And in the Old Testament, that was restricted to Israel. But as we have seen through Jesus Christ, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me in Matthew chapter 28, 19. And Jesus... uh, his lineage is from the ancestral line of Judah, of David, because David was after that ancestral line. He, he was, uh, Jesus is said to be the line of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus today has that scepter, has that iron rod. And in Psalm 2, it is prophesied that he will dash the nations with an iron rod. And it says, therefore, you kings, you rulers of the earth, be warned. Serve the Lord with trembling, lest you perish in the way. And we read in Zechariah chapter 8, we read in um, Daniel, that the kingdom shall be given over unto the saints, and that um, that there will be ten Jews grabbing the garment of one Jew. And how many of you know that we are Jews, circumcised by the Spirit? That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that the that ten Jews will grab the robe of one Jew, saying, teach us, uh, the ways of the Lord, because God is with you. And so that is to imply revival. That isn't to imply a numerical increase of the kingdom of God that, as the scriptures record, I believe in Matthew chapter 13, begins as a mustard seed, but begins to grow and grow and grow, becomes the most uh, magnificent and abundant uh, kingdom of all kingdoms. We see this prophesied in Daniel Um, The kingdom of God is likened unto yeast that continues to grow. Remember that parable? Uh, It's also described in Daniel um, that it will grow and this kingdom shall have no end. If you look how Daniel prophesied of the Midian Persians and the Greeks and and then the Romans and then from that uh, time of the Romans will arise a, uh, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this is what the Bible describes in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And in that passage, the Lord says, I will shake the heavens and the earth once again, so that which cannot be shaken shall remain. What is that which cannot be shaken? It's the kingdom of God, for it is built upon the rock. And so we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a kingdom that remains. And so it is that kingdom, Jesus says in Luke, that if I by the finger of God cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. So how do we manifest the kingdom? How do we bring the kingdom? We bring the kingdom by two things, by knowledge and power. We bring the kingdom by two things, knowledge and power. If I have knowledge, it doesn't matter if um, if I don't have power. The you know, and and I would add to that, you have to have authority too, because you can have power to cause to uh, arrest someone, but that doesn't mean you have the authority to do it. And you can have the authority to arrest someone, but if you're a small officer and you're going up against a huge man, you might not have the power to subdue that, that criminal. Or, and so you need knowledge, authority, and power. And what does Jesus do in Matthew chapter 28, 19? He says, all authority and power has been given unto me. And what does he say? Therefore, go and make disciples. So the therefore is a transitionary term. Because of this, do this. So the grounding, because what I'm sending you out to do is grounded by this reality. What is this reality? That I have been given heaven, uh, uh, given authority and power. And I am now giving you that power to go and replicate what I did on earth. Okay, and so <clears throat> we see this kingdom is unshakable. And this kingdom is built upon knowledge, authority, and power. And this authority and power is what has been conferred to those who are called as ambassadors of Christ. And ambassadors are legal representatives of, of the Lord. And so now we're coming to... so. And then we spoke about evangelism. What does... It looked to be what does it look like to be an evangelist? What are the duties of an evangelist and and so on and so forth? Um, but this topic today, I want to speak about specifically prophetic evangelism. So the ultimate thing was we're in a kingdom and we need to bring that kingdom. And secondly was evangelism. We spoke about evangelism and that's exactly how we advance the kingdom. But now I'm going more into the a method. Of evangelism that I believe is biblical. Um, I have been practicing for a number of years, and not only have I uh, ex um, experiential authority to be able to speak in this area, that is to say, I have authority from my experiences, um, I believe is biblical. And not only do I believe it's biblical, I believe it's effective. Because there are certain things that are biblical but aren't effective. Because God's intention intention isn't for it to necessarily be effective. Because the most effective thing is to preach a watered down, diluted gospel and me give you religious foot rubs as you come into the church, you know, and and kind of rub your neck and make you feel comfortable, give you a little uh, high five and a and a donut, right? That feels that that's actually pretty nice. And if we give you a Joel Olstein smile. People are going to feel very welcome to continue to come into the church, right? Um, but that's not, um, it might be effective, but it's not biblical. And so, um, prophetic evangelism, 
in my experience, is far much more effective than, um, and I'm not I'm not minimizing those who take this way of evangelizing. If at the end of the day your message is consistent with the Bible, with Jesus Christ crucified, buried, rose, you know, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Majesty on high, then I applaud you for your efforts for evangelizing. Nevertheless, because the fact that you're trying to go in and save someone drowning matters not to me whether your method is the best or it's decent. The fact is you're still trying to rescue someone. Now, when we're not in the middle of rescuing someone, we can talk about methods later in training and talk about are there more effective ways. If we truly do care about people and want to win as many people as possible, let us talk about methods. Right? Because we want to save as many as possible. Why am I going to limit myself to a fishing rod if I can tell you, if I tell you I have a vast net that can save us time? Right? So, <coughs> but the, the method I'm talking about is the very um, formula-driven uh, 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 way of evangelism um, that, that says the same thing repeatedly. Um, and, and so like in every situation, you're going to say the same exact thing in the same exact way. And once again, I'm not, I'm not knocking people who do that. I think people who do that are like Ray Comfort. It has, is a very, uh, strict resume, very strict formula on how exactly he's going to evangelize. But in my experience of evangelism <clears throat> and how nuanced and dynamic it is, I see that there are areas of deficiency in it because, um, sometimes you might do a disservice to someone if if what they need is other than what you're being able to provide them. All, if all you have in your tool belt is a hammer, then you're going to treat everything like a nail, right? And so we don't want to treat uh, screws as nails. We need a screwdriver for a screw, and we need a hammer for a nail. And so uh, what prophetic evangelism is isn't the only method. <clears throat> I've recommended the book Tactics that is uh, what's called questioning evangelism, um, Socratic evangelism. It is um, making an entry point through a tactful and insightful questions. And we're not going to go into that. Um, and time to time, I still do that if I don't get a prophetic word for someone. And to be honest, I kind of have a hybrid where I integrate everything so I'm more dynamic and less uh, deficient in my ability to evangelize people, right? So whatever the Holy Ghost wants to do, I'm open to it. But my front and center uh, uh, ambition is to manifest the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there's an express purpose. Why? Because it's biblical and Jesus did it, right? So <clears throat> with that said, I want us to just simply define evangelism, first of all. What is exactly that we mean by evangelism? Because sometimes people have mistaken what people see. Sadly, um, some of the churches around here grow, grew up in like grew up in in an era like a Billy Graham era and uh, and uh, old Pentecostal movement era. And the reason why I say that is because they think that evangelizing is going to church to church and preaching one of those old sermons <laughs> and, you know, that sort of deal. They have that whole persona that they carry. And uh, I don't know how that is evangelism if you're in the church. 
Now, I think what's largely assumed is that the church people are going to bring a bunch of unsaved people so the the evangelists can witness to them. But that's not how it works. The sheep are not supposed to get the lost. The evangelist is. So the evangelist should not be resting on the sheep bringing unsaved people to the church. Sheep are largely intimidated by unsaved people to begin with. And you're going to rely on them to do it? And I'm sorry, we're living in an era where a lot of people are listening to drill music, trap music. And so they don't know who Billy Graham is to begin with. And so if someone like a big name like that comes to a church and say, hey, Billy Graham's coming, Billy who? You know, or, you know, the latest uh, evangelist or so-and-so. You know, the world's not up to date with the even our gospel uh, hip-hop artists. In some cases, they're familiar with them. But as good as that music is, you already know that the world's going to do it better than the church is because the world's going to speak their language. Even if our hip-hop gospel uh, music is appealing to them because of the beats and stuff like that, the world's always going to outdo the church. Always. They outdo us in movies. They outdo us in music. You can see our cheesy Christian movies. They're poor actors. And and I'm saying that not to really like knock us very much, but it's just get real. Either we come in power and knowledge... Or we don't. I don't want to rely on all the other stuff because I don't I don't want all the equipment. I don't want to bring this whole sound system so I can reach the world or or hoping advertise myself on billboards in hopes that the world's gonna come to my ch- that's nonsense. It's not what Jesus did. Okay, and it just takes too much money and effort to do all that stuff. Um I'd rather allow God to do the work than myself, right? <clears throat> but let's do, <clears throat> so that's not evangelism that's preaching to the already saved to preach in a church house now can someone get saved yeah but it's kind of like um expecting um someone who isn't an alcoholic to be in a bar you, you get what i'm saying it's it, it so number one is evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade convince and to convert. So once again, evangelism is teaching and preaching the gospel, in other words, the good news, with this aim, to persuade, convince, and to convert. And so, number one, um, it involves teaching. Psalm 51, then will I teach sinners in the way. Right? But there's also an element of preaching in it. Preaching is different than teaching. Preaching is prescriptive. That, In other words, I'm telling you what to do. Repent. Change your sinful ways and turn to Christ. Teaching is telling you how or why. So preaching is prescribing the what. Teaching is telling you the why and the how. Right. So all all good all good um I'll, I'll rest there. But it 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 also has the aim to persuade. So in other words, that means that we have to be persuasive. Right? <clears throat> if our character is is in error, that's not a very persuasive thing to lost people or people in the church, right? 
So if I'm if I'm arrogant, if I'm preaching at them rather than to them, um, these are all things that turn them off. Now, if someone's going to reject the gospel, may it be because they reject the content and they reject Jesus. May it not be because they've rejected me, the mailman. I don't want anybody, neither should we want anybody to ever say, I don't want to come to your Jesus because of you. It's like uh, Gandhi said. He says, I love your Jesus, but I don't love his followers. Or he says, I like, uh, he said something to that effect. Basically, I really love how Jesus, your fo- your master, lives his life. But when it comes to his followers, he says, I- I'm not seeing the, the correspondence there. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and in fact, Gandhi was a very disciplined man. I'm not saying he was right, but he stood for peace and, and you... It's very um, impressive to find people who are not regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Ghost to do some very moral things. Uh, that's kind of impressive thing in the flesh to me. He's still, you know, a, a nice dead man. Uh, he, he's a nice man, but he was a nice dead man. Let's put it that way. His his corpse didn't stink as much, if we could put it that way, because uh, they're all dead in sin. Um, so w- our character should be persuasive, but we should also persuade, not not saying that we have to become so familiar with apologetics and science and stuff, but we should know our Bibles enough to be able to um, explain the scriptures and, and, and to do it in a way that makes sense, right? <clears throat> there was someone who recently challenged me on my Facebook. I know him personally. He's in the world. And he was just speaking about all this nonsense. Uh, he's advocating for abortion and all this stuff. And then he tried to send me a screen. He sent me a screenshot on my comment section of all these passages where God supposedly uh, approved of abortion. I said, um, you're taking those verses out of context. I'd love to teach you the Bible, but you would have to sit down and be willing to allow me to teach you them because you're unqualified to interpret them, seeing that you haven't made it your life practice to obey and learn the very book that you're trying to throw at my face that I study every day. Right? And so <clears throat> that is all to say this. I'm not going to explain those passages to you because it's a waste of time. You have no intention on obeying them. Right? So we want to be persuasive to those who are open. Jesus didn't waste his time with people who are already closed off. Remember how he said he spoke to them in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear? So Jesus didn't waste his time with Pharisees who were warped and intended, uh, attending on already rejecting no matter what evidence you provide. They were the proud of heart. So, um, so we're evangelizing, we're teaching the gospel, we're preaching the gospel, but what exactly is the gospel? And it's very simple. You guys already know this. But I want to stress it as um, as a reminder. <coughs> First Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this. That according to the scriptures, Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again. Right? For the forgiveness of sins. That is plainly the gospel. Now one thing to, I want to add that's often missed out and isn't emphasized 
is Jesus' res- uh, ascension. Because as you see the, act, the book of Acts and how the apostles proclaimed the gospel, they never left that out. And it's surprising that in our modern day evangelism that we often leave the ascension out. Now, why is it exactly the apostles did not leave out the ascension? Well, they didn't leave out the ascension because of this. Jesus' death atoned for sin, put away sin. Jesus' resurrection provided us the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. But Jesus' ascension implies his current rulership that implies that he will eventually permanently do away with sin. And so that's the expectation that the Jews had, that there would be a reigning Messiah. That's why they did not leave out the ascension. That doesn't make very much sense to modern day Americans. Well, what does it mean that he ascended? We have a president. We're not looking for a Messiah. Well, like it or not, there is one. And he's ruling and he's reigning. And his rulership means this. The kingdom of God is now enacted in the earth. The principalities are overturned. Satan has lost his dominion. Jesus has gained it. So therefore, we advance with those mar- in light of that reality with our marching orders. And so the gospel, Jesus' ascension means this. We have power and dominion to usher in the kingdom of God on this earth. Right? <clears throat> now, I don't want to turn there you know, you know let, let, let us turn there real quickly. Acts chapter 8. Um, um, this passage right here in Acts chapter 8 verses 4 through 8 is an occurrence um, of kingdom advancement. And we see that Philip <coughs> goes down <laughs> into Samaria <coughs> And he's an evangelist. And we know that by what it states in Acts chapter 21, it says that Philip was an evangelist. And this is what the scriptures read. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So what is he doing? He's going down to a city that he did not belong to. Right? So they don't know him. He's not taking polls on how seeker, you know, how friendly people are to the gospel. He's not putting his face on billboards. He's not doing any of that. He just goes down to a city because persecution breaks out. He's led of the spirit. Then he goes there and he proclaims who? He proclaims the Messiah. And so he proclaims Jesus as Lord. That's what it means that he's Messiah. Um, You have to take careful note. Whenever it says Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Son of God, or Jesus the Son of Man, all these descriptions are giving you into insight into what the re, what the writer wants you to understand about Jesus in this particular passage. So he's proclaiming Jesus the Messiah there, and is it of any wonder why, because of Jesus's messianic reign, not. <laughs> Not Masonic reign, like Natalia had mistaken for me to say last. Not Masonic reign, Messianic reign. Um, Is it any wonder after proclaiming the Messiah that miracles follow, signs follow, and demons are cast out? Why are demons cast out? 
Because there's someone that evicted them who has the power to do so, and it's our reigning Messiah. And so it says right here, verse 6, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many were paral- and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So my observation is this. Number one, when you preach the Messiah and come in the power of the Messiah, you are now doing things that the Messiah had done. Right? And, and when you do that, what happens? They pay attention. It says they paid... <coughs> they all paid close attention. So miracle signs and wonders has the ability to incite people's uh, to attract people's attention to the message that you have to proclaim right um and he's coming in the kingdom power to cast out demons and so this is an example of evangelism so now we will return back to this idea of accompanying signs with um evangelism so we're going to put that on hold for a minute but i want now at this point to provide definition for prophecy okay so prophecy is speaking information by the holy spirit that concerns the future of a person or nation so once again it's information by the holy spirit it says, no prophecy has its origin with man, but holy men were spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, right? That's what the scripture says in Second Peter. Um, so it's information obtained by the Holy Spirit concerning someone's future. Now notice the tense of, of that information. It's future tense. It's not past nor present. Prophecy is always predictive in nature. Um, yes, it's predictive in nature. <clears throat> now, what I add to that, and, and what I want to add to that is another gift that is very similar, but is, is nonetheless distinct, and it's the gift of the word of knowledge. And a word of knowledge I, I wrote down is defined by speaking information obtained by the Holy Spirit concerning someone's past or present. So you notice that what differentiates prophecy from word of knowledge is purely tense related. Prophecy concerns future, word of knowledge concerns past or present. Right? Following so far? Now, if there was ever anything that was greatly contested and disputed today in the early in the in our modern church is tongues Casting out demons, and especially, even more than casting out demons, because surprisingly there are some cessationists, and if you're not familiar with that term at this point, cessationists are those who do not believe in the gifts. There are surprisingly some cessationists that actually believe in casting out demons, but they would not categorize that as a gift. So there are some, and uh, to be fair, because they exist, um, they're just rare. They're not the common cessations. They're very rare in, in their 
very few in number, but once, but nevertheless, all will disagree in tongues, and all will certainly disagree with prophecy. And what they're so scared about is this. They say, if you prophesy and you're claiming it's the word of the Lord, what prevents you from adding that as scripture to the Bible? And an easily, or easy way to refute that is this. Even the New Testament writers do not recognize every single prophetic word as scripture. <clears throat> the reason we know this is because Saul prophesied in the Old Testament. We have none of his prophecies. There was a school of the prophets. They prophesied. We have none of their prophecies. In the New Testament, Philip's daughters, there was four of them, and they were prophetesses, and we have none of their prophecies. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when Paul is in, in uh, 12 or 14, where Paul is given a description on how he expects the church to conduct themselves, how the prophets are to conduct themselves when offering prophetic words, he says, hey, look, you can prophesy, let the others sit by and wait. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can't just blurt out these words and act as if God just made you do it. There's, there's decency and order. So he's providing order. And guess what? He recognizes there are prophets in that church because he writes extensively about prophecy. And guess what? We have no single recording in the canon of scripture of any Corinthian prophet ever recording prophetic words. So what does that say? That even Paul, And Paul says this explicitly. He says, If any among you claims himself to be a prophet, let him recognize that the things I write are the commandments of the Lord. So already Paul is distinguishing what he considers Scripture versus a prophetic gift. And the prophetic gift does not immediately give you access to include that within the canon of Scripture. The last book was was the book of Revelation, which some scholars argue had been written um, anywhere um, from before 70 AD to 90 AD, somewhere around there. And so that was the last book in the Bible, and even the apostolic successors recognized there were no further books needed or required after that. And so um, I wanted to just add that. Um, <clears throat> one other thing for your information, <clears throat> because the Bible does include words of wisdom, and that is distinct from the word of knowledge and distinct from the gift of prophecy. Um, every prophet who has a prof who is in the prophetic office by default already has discerning of spirits word of wisdom word of knowledge prophecy that already comes with the prophetic office undeniably hands down the the word of wisdom is not the word of knowledge a word of knowledge gives you access to the person's past or present whereas prophecy tells you what will happen a word of wisdom tells you how to do what will happen so it shall come to pass so let's say um the lord gives me access um I, I, i'll share i'll share for example um a recent experience with boycano um the lord had given me uh, a word of knowledge the word of knowledge was that he was recently thinking about or praying about his finances I asked him that in the prayer meeting. He said yes, and and he had the Lord had also given me words of knowledge about he was in the computer science or something involving computers, and um, the prophetic word was that God is going to supply 
you with finances what was the word of wisdom that god had for me to give to him seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and these things shall be added that was the word of wisdom it gave him application for that information do you see that and so a full packaged word that is extremely beneficial is when all of these coalesce with each other word of knowledge Prophetic word and word of wisdom. <clears throat> and so, I want to give you... And so the reason why I mentioned cessationists is because cessationists argue against this stuff. And I want to uh, draw your attention to two passages real quick to ground this in in the bible because at the end of the day it's the scriptures that are <coughs> our final authority <coughs> it isn't what a man says it isn't what the pope says it isn't what anybody says uh, but what god says in the scriptures so first corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 11 first corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 11 recording in progress <clears throat> or the discerning of spirits is also demonstrated when um, the soothsaying woman in the book of Acts who was making money for her slave owners she was actually prophesying by a demonic spirit it says she had the spirit of Python and um, she she followed them for many days and then guess what? She became, uh, Paul became very irritated. And guess what? She was saying very true things. She said, here are the servants of the Most High God who show you the way of salvation. Was there anything that she was saying that was unbiblical? And by the rational mind, if we think about it, why would a demon, hold on. Why would a demonic spirit advertising campaign Paul's ministry if anything the demon would want to turn people's attention away from Paul um, my, my guess is that they were trying to lift them up with pride and so Paul becomes irritated so that's how you and then he discerns that she had a demonic spirit even though that she wasn't saying anything demonic the source was contaminated and he knew that she was operating by a um, demonic spirit. Um, it's like I've had a number of occasions where I had this uh, had this experience where <coughs> before someone manifested, there was no indication externally that they were demon-possessed. In fact, they were complete strangers to me. Um... And uh, one time there was this guy who visited a Bible study. And he wasn't acting weird. He was actually pretty social, getting along with everybody. And um, he was actually just playing the guitar. And I took some brothers aside and I said, hey, this guy, he has a demon. And uh, they're like, how do you know that? I'm just saying, I'm picking that up in my spirit. And sure enough, the following week or two, he ended up manifesting. And we had to cast a demon out of him. And uh, his eyes turned black and everything. 
Um, and so, and and you can discern, you can discern even, uh, now here's the thing, be careful with it because your discernment is only as precise as, it, your dis- discernment is only as strong as the richness of your intimacy with the Holy Spirit is. Because if it's not grounded in that, I have found so many people say, I have the gift of discernment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why your life is a mess. Totally. You have the gift of discernment and your life is a mess. No, you don't. What you have is a critical spirit and you're judging everybody based off your own mind. And so, um, anyways. um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, it says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's just stop there real quick. It says the manifestation. Let not new age steal this language from us. Because this is our language. We don't manifest destiny. We manifest the gifts of the Spirit. That's what we manifest. It's right there in the text. I'm not... I'm not injecting language i'm just allowing the bible to speak for itself right it's kind of like how the gays they want to steal our rainbow no that's not going to happen it's ours right right and i get that some confusion can be associated with that because of how ignorant people are to its true meaning well actually it's not even a rainbow anymore they added some other feminine colors to it as well so I'm sure that covers the XYZ aspect of the LGBT, ABC, XYZ. Uh, so, um, now I know my LGBT. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> okay. So, Okay, we don't want to manifest the flesh, right? We want to manifest, <laughs> we want to manifest the spirit. We don't want to manifest our flesh, our carnality. We want to manifest the Holy Ghost. And it says that when we manifest the Holy Ghost, because guess what? Demons manifest too, right? What happens when someone manifests a demon? That can happen how a demon manifests itself can look different. It doesn't just look like exorcism. Eyes rolling in the back of the head, eyes turning black, um, uh, crazy uh, uh, voices overtaking them. Demons can manifest through illnesses. We know this when Jesus cast out the spirit of infirmity. And he's. <coughs> we see that in the text. And so not every sickness is a spirit of infirmity. Let's be clear and let's be fair. Not every sickness. Some is just because you're dumb and you don't take care of yourself. Other things are, you know, um, because the way, you, you know, it's some like a flu. It's it's just a flu. It's a common cold. You'll get over it, right? Let's not make this overly spiritual here. Other things is because you didn't take care of yourself. Other things are because this is actually a demon. This is truly a demon. So, but the Spirit wants to manifest for the common good of the church. It says, verse 8, To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. That's the word of wisdom we're talking about. To another, a message of knowledge. That's the word of knowledge we're talking about. 
by means of the same Spirit to another of faith, by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing, by the one Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. <coughs> so we see clearly here that there are differing gifts of the Holy Ghost. And undeniably included in that is the gift of prophecy, gift of word of knowledge. And if you turn just um, a couple chapters over to verse 14, the beginning uh, and verse 1, This is what Paul's desire was for the Corinthian church. So, let me just say this. Let me preface. I'll say it after I read it. It's just one verse. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, which would be healing, you know, tongues. Eagerly desire that. Especially prophesy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but to the one who prophesies edifies the church. And so we see there, number one, it's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. So what happens if you don't obey commandments? You're disobedient. So what was the commandment? Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Paul didn't say think about it. He didn't say if you feel led. You know, sometimes I'm tired of people saying I feel led because it's an excuse for disobedience. And I'll say, I'll snap, uh, I'm tempted to snap a uh, the tip of a pencil and say, here, you feel led. Now do it. <laughs> There's your lead. Fill it. Now get on. Now I'm not denying the fact that we ought, we obviously feel we we have to feel led about certain things. I'm not denying that. But sometimes people use that as a safeguard to prevent them from obedience. When it's undeniable, it's right here in the text. This applies for us all. And so um, tongues. If you see there, just a quick interjection because people like to dispute tongues so much. Is it's not meant for anybody but you and the Lord. It's meant for you and God. And so man is not going to be able to understand you. And and so this edifies yourself. It's the it's a Greek word that comes to mean to build up as an edifice, to construct. Remember where the temple, you see in Nehemiah's day, they constructed the temple like I spoke about this Saturday. Well, we need to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Jude chapter 1 verse 20. Praying in the Holy Ghost. But right here, prophecy it's there there's no indication that it has ever ceased and paul did not say after i'm done (coughs) writing these letters that the gift of prophecy is going to be done away with he never said it and i'm tired of these people with fat heads and shrunken souls always arguing against it it's sad they're quenching the holy spirit Some of the prophetic words spoken over myself have been so encouraging. Made me cry. 
made me realize that, man, my prayers were in vain, that God actually knows and he still speaks to people, uh, you know, about our situations. They're very encouraging. That's what it says, right? Does it not? That it, it it's for um, strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So prophecy strengthens you. It comforts you. It edifies you. Um, that's why Paul says, Do not neglect the prophecies that were spoken over you, and that by remembering them you may wage a good warfare. That's what Paul told Timothy, if I'm not mistaken, in the first letter. Um... <clears throat> now, as I mentioned, uh, keep a footnote there in Acts chapter 8 when we're talking about evangelism, right? And signs and stuff like that because I wanted to define evangelism and I wanted to show from the scriptures what it looks like to evangelize and then come to prophecy, words of knowledge to show that it is in fact scriptural. And what I'm doing here is further grounding you in the word so that you become students of this, so that if people try to argue against you, you're well equipped to know that this is here in the passage, this is what it means, and it doesn't mean otherwise. Um, but now we're coming to a more nuanced, uh, dynamic form of evangelism that I like to call prophetic evangelism. Um, or some uh, others have coined it as power evangelism. And... So, I defined it as this way. Uh, it is pairing the prophetic and word of knowledge gifting with teaching and preaching the gospel with the aim to persuade, convince, and to convert unbelievers. So, it's very similar to what we mentioned at the first of how to define evangelism. But in this case, we're saying that it involves pairing or coupling the prophetic grace and the word of knowledge gifting with gospel teaching and preaching for this purpose of converting unbelievers. Now, some people have disputed and said, oh, well, you know, prophecy is for the church. Did you just not read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that it is for the strengthening of the believers? But let me demonstrate to you that um, it's the scope of word of knowledge and prophecy also uh, extends to unbelievers as well. If in the same chapter, verse uh, chapter fourteen, beginning at verse twenty-four, this is Paul writing, and remember how in Acts chapter eight, what accompanied Philip. Who can tell me what accompanied Philip? I don't, don't understand the question. <laughs> so in Acts chapter 8, what were the things that followed Philip's preaching? Oh. Signs. Yes. There you go. And so, <clears throat> thank you. So now when we go to verse 24, it says, But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, <coughs> they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So, um... 
Excuse me one second. So, who does it say right here? If an unbeliever. And so, what does this sign of prophecy or word of knowledge indicate? Well, it indicates that God is really among you. It's a, a sign that God is in your midst. It is a sign of the kingdom. Right? And so, this also applies for unbelievers. It says, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying. So in other words, they're coming in. They're not in. <clears throat> There's a difference between being in the sheepfold and then coming into it. This person is an inquirer. He's, he's curious. He's not a believer. Paul says that explicitly. It says they are, what, convicted of sin? You know, a lot of cessationists say, what's the gift of, you know, What's the use of prophecy? You know, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And um, and it's like, well, very simple. Paul tells us it's for the purpose of convicting sin. How does it accomplish that? And are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So words of knowledge disclose the secrets of their hearts. And they're brought under judgment. Under what judgment? Your judgment. They know that you know now. <laughs> they know what? The secrets of their hearts. And it brings conviction. And what does it accomplish? Well, because of that prophetic word, that word of knowledge, guess what happens? So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So, prophecy, a lot of people have said, oh, if we just open the floodgates of prophecy, everyone's going to become so puffed up and make it about themselves. Obviously, to the unbelievers, he's making it about God here. Right? He's not making it about, he says, oh, wow, a prophet is among you. He doesn't say that. He says, wow, God is among you. Because he knows that if there's any way that you would come to know, it is only because God told you. It isn't because you were following them around. Remember, there wasn't no social media in that day. There was no Facebook. He couldn't look this person up. You know, so there's no tactics here other than the fact that there is a real Holy Spirit and he speaks to us. And then furthermore, you don't have to turn. Um, you don't have you don't have to turn there, but I just want to quickly read in Hebrews chapter two. Um, this is what the word of the Lord says. Uh, let me see real quick. In verse one through four. The Bible says we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message, what message? The gospel spoken. Oh, no, wait. This was the message of the law spoken through angels. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who have heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, people always say, sola scriptura, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And scripture alone is enough to serve as the ultimate authority. 
But God didn't only use scripture to convince the hearers. He used signs. In fact, when Paul went among the pagans, guess what? He didn't cite to them a single scripture. I'm not suggesting that we don't bring scripture in among those who are pagans. But I'm saying that at least in Paul's evangelism, you know what he actually did? He looked to their poets and he looked to what they believed in. And he says, I see here that you guys are very super religious, uh, superstitious because I see an altar here that says to an unknown God. And he says, the unknown God that you don't know, I know. And it is him that I proclaim. And he begins proclaiming Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, but he doesn't even start from the scriptures. He starts from their inscription on an altar. And then even in his address to the the, uh, Greeks at Mars Hill, he actually cites one of their poets. I don't know if it was, um, who was it? Uh, Cyocles or, um, I, I forgot the Greek poet's name, but if you look there, and if you have a good Bible, it should show you there in the footnote. The quotation is, in him we live, move, and have our being. That's not a quote by Paul. That is a, pope, a quote by a pagan philosopher or poet. And Paul uses that. I'm not saying that's our authority, but that's Paul's missional mind in being able to gain entry into the mind of his hearers. So that he can gain a listening from them. And that's exactly what he gained among them. It wasn't as successful as some other places. But nevertheless, that's how Paul actually ends up addressing them. Because they don't already agree with the scriptures. And once again, I'm not saying don't preach the scriptures. I'm just saying that we have to be very dynamic in our approach and how we evangelize. And so... um. <clears throat> Every, we're following so far. Let me let me show you real quick, and I want us to turn there. It is in John chapter one, verse forty-five through fifty-one. Oh, no, excuse me, forty-three through fifty-one. The book of John, chapter one. Verses 43 through 51. This is the encounter Nathaniel had with Jesus. And what the reason why I'm asking that we turn there is because it demonstrates to us how Jesus engaged with those who were to be his followers. At this point, Nathaniel was not following Jesus. Okay? Verse 43, and this is, he's um, he's going to uh, provide a word of knowledge and he's going to provide a prophecy. The next day Jesus, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael. And told them, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And so what, what do we see? Verse 46. You know, it, it, it's, you're going to hear that too. You know, 
Arkansas, can anything come good from Arkansas? Anything good come from Hungary? Or anything good come from Croatia? <laughs> nah. Nah, that's what they're going to say. Right? Speaking of my own town, it's the people from my own town always speak worst about my town. Like nothing good comes from here. That's why Jesus says that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, among his own people. And so you see, Nathaniel is already doubtful. And Jesus knows this. And the Holy Spirit knows this. And so the Holy Spirit provides a word of knowledge to help solidify and validate Jesus' authority and who he really is. To demonstrate, no, this is is, uh, who Moses spoke about. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now they don't sound very, uh, very, uh, you know, detailed. But hey, it speaks to him. It says, "How do you know me?" Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, "I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you." Then Nathaniel declared, "Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel." Jesus said, "You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that." He then added, "Verily." Uh, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So that last part right there was a prophecy. He told Nathaniel what he will see. But the, the earlier words were words of knowledge. Now I want to break this down to you so you guys can know. <clears throat> there are different words of knowledge. Words of knowledge, in Jesus' case here, was a vision. He says, I saw you. Well, how do you see him? He's seen him by a vision. So words of knowledge can be um, sensings. It can be feelings. It can be seeings. Or it can be knowings. Knowings are the words you hear. And it's associated with hearing. Seeings are associated with eyes. Right, and the feelings are associated with the sensings are associated. The feelings are associated with sense. So there's sensing, hearing, and seeing, but it's all categorized under this broad heading of word of knowledge. Does that make sense? Gotcha. And the same applies for prophecy. Now, the reason why this is important to note because the way that God primarily speaks to me is through my hearing. And everybody with a gifting is going to have a an area that they lack, even in their prophetic gifting. Um, I'm more of a hearer and I'm more of a feeler than I am a seer. I see things. There are times where I literally see visions. And I there was one time when I was working at um, I was working as a tutor and mentor at a at the high schools, man, already like five years ago. And I remember seeing this, I, I approached a student and uh, I I went to introduce myself because that's how we had to mentor people. We, we would ment- uh, uh, approach those that were struggling academically 
<clears throat> and so as I was introducing myself, I seen her with a little baby in a car, in a red car, and they got in a car accident. And I said, hey, I know this sounds really crazy, but I, I feel like this has happened recently to you. And uh, let me know if this is true. I see you in a red car with a little child and you you got in a car accident. And she said, oh. and she went like that. She said, last week, I got in a car accident with my little boy and I've been traumatized since. And and so I've seen that as clear as day. It was like a movie reel playing before me. But that doesn't happen all the time. More of my experiences are hearings. And the reason why it's important for me to mention this to you, because you might see something and expect that you're going to hear something. And if you're expecting that you're going to hear something when you're seeing something, you might be tempted to say, I'm not going to share that. Because one of the grow, one of the ways that we grow in the prophetic is that we have to eliminate the preconceived ideas that we have that places limitations on God. I remember uh, when I first started prophesying, I felt like, or I got words of knowledge, I felt like because the environment that I was in was inappropriate. Um, what I mean by that wasn't mean like I was doing sinful things. It was just I'm carrying around just natural business, just you know, going to stores and stuff. It didn't feel like a holy place, like a church or something. I wasn't praying and you know, and and uh, in preparation to expect something like that. And so, <clears throat> um, I felt like, um, why would God speak here? And, and so that placed limitations on God and therefore limited me in my gifting. And so you have to remove the barriers of limitations. You have to remove the barriers of how you think God is going to speak to you. One of my areas of lack are dreams. God may be speaking to you in dreams more. He may be speaking to you in visions more. He may be speaking to you in words more. Um, but nevertheless, uh, one of the ways that I remember one time, um, God... One of the, I didn't know that God would have done this, but he he gave me the exact chapter and verse, uh, exact book, chapter, and verse um, to something he wanted to share with me. Because I heard a word that he spoke to me. He gave me a scripture. He said, the gifts and callings are without repentance, and it's what I needed to hear. And then I'm saying, okay, Lord, I believe that you shared that with me. What book, what chapter, and what verse is it in? And I didn't know. And he told me. And I went to look and it was the exact same one. And so I share that because sometimes people don't think that God can give you exact verses. And what is that? Unbelief. It's doubt. It's limitations on God. And so we see here nevertheless in Daniel's, in Nathaniel's case that Jesus spoke to him. And the, the revelation Jesus received was through revelation, was through sight. And I'm not going to ask that we turn there, but another occurrence is in John chapter 4, verses 15 through 26 with the Samaritan woman. Right? You all remember that story where Jesus says, you, he says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. <coughs> and she said, oh, wow, <laughs> I perceive you are a prophet. And he says, look, I'm more than a prophet. He says, I, he says that he was the Christ. She then goes and shares 
and publishes that abroad to all of Samaria. And guess what ends up, who end up following him? A bunch of Samaritans. So look at what one single word was able to accomplish in the life of that Samaritan woman and in the lives of, of those who dwelt in Samaria. One prophetic word. Um, as, as one guy who um, practices this as well describes it, he would describe it as a now word. A nevertheless at your word, Lord. In in Peter's case, remember when he went fishing? What happened? Um, he fished all night. His expertise could not gain him the results that only a word of knowledge was able to gain him, uh, provide him. He was fishing on all night. And Jesus says, look, uh, cast your net over right here. And basically you're going to get a lot of fish. He says... Look, we've been fishing all night. See, Peter thought he knew. But he was relying on the natural mind. And see, but Jesus was relying on the mind of the Holy Spirit to communicate to him what Peter needed to do. And so Peter says, we were fishing all night. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll cast it over. And so he cast over the net. And so what is that symbolic of? We are looking not for fish. We're casting nets for men. And see what a, nevertheless, Lord, at your word, a now word can do when we listen to the Holy Spirit and we cast our net where Jesus says for us to cast it. And as a result, we have a large bundle. Rather than going as a formula to person to person to person to person and seeing no fruitful results, I'd rather rely on the Holy Spirit. Not to say I discount that because I still do that time to time. I think that's good. You know, because I just think it's good. But nevertheless, look at what a what a word can do. See, when that happens, it's Jesus showing off, and not our tactics. Someone might say, "Well, prophetic evangelism is a tactic." Yeah, but it's the Holy Spirit's tactic, not mine. Right? It's His because He says all throughout the Scriptures, "This will happen to those who believe." They will do this. Mark chapter 16. They will speak in new tongues. They will cast out demons. These are things that they will do. And I remember uh, Prophet Cobus said this. He said, I don't follow signs. Signs follow me. <laughs> I like that. Now, it's, it's, he's being hyperbolic there. Because in one sense, you do follow after signs to some degree. Because Paul says, seek earnestly that you may prophesy. So you have to seek it. In order, you have to follow it in order for it to follow you. Um, <clears throat> and so, let me sum up here. Um, we've touched on evangelism. We've touched on uh, you know, examples of evangelism and w- how to define prophecy, how to define word of knowledge. And the examples we see in scriptures, not only in the ministry and life of Jesus, but in the ministry of the apostles. We mentioned them in Peter's case with Ananias and Sapphira. Paul with the, uh, the, the slave girl, right? We see these different occurrences where they're operating. And even in doctrine, we see Paul lay out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 on the functions of prophecy and what it can accomplish. He tells us this in chapter 14, verse 24 and 25, that 
an unbeliever will say, he will be convicted of sin, the secrets of his heart will laid bare, and he will say, surely the God of truth is among you. Right? And so, that, when, when function together, when we couple prof- prophecy and words of knowledge with evangelism, we gain wonderful results. I remember one time, I've shared this testimony before, and um, I was at a Bible study, and <clears throat> there was this guy, there was a, a brother in the Lord that was giving the study, he was my friend, had only known him for about like a year at this point, maybe, yeah, maybe a year, uh, maybe six, eight months, somewhere around there, and he was giving the study that night, and he had a friend that uh, he knew from some earlier years that had attended, but this guy, he was an atheist. And, uh, well, because that atheist was friends with the guy giving the Bible study, the atheist felt comfortable to kind of nitpick the guy who was giving the Bible study saying, you know, I don't think I believe that, you know, you're just questioning it, uh, calling into question, contesting it. And, um, as he's doing this, the brother in the Lord who's giving the study is giving arguments for why you should believe the Bible. Was he wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. He was he was perfectly legitimate in in doing that, and I, that's appropriate. <coughs> we need we need good reasons, and but this atheist, interestingly enough, was into like new age, speaking positive confessions, attracting things to himself, law of attraction, that nonsense. And he was speaking about, look, I don't think I need prayer. I've attracted so th- so many things to to myself. I'm not sure if. Uh, if prayer, even if it existed, um, if it would be effective. And um, so at that point, God spoke to me about him and about his personal life. And I remember <coughs> I said, hey, man, I just want to let you know that no one in this group told me anything about you. I don't know you. You you know I don't know you. And um, I see that you kind of have a relationship with uh, the guy giving the study I want to make it clear that he told me nothing about you. I I preface with that because um, I believe God spoke to me about you. And um, I want to share it. I said, the Lord says that you've used all these law of attraction things and have claimed that this has attracted things to you. But you know one thing it didn't attract um, to you is health for your mother who was severely ill. And he started just weeping. His lips started quivering. He turned and just started bawling. Just crying. And he was a very intellectual, composed, reserved atheist. Didn't seem very into his emotions. So I looked at my friend. He was jaw dropped like, what the heck just happened? You know, and he and we. I got to pray over him. He literally broke down like a baby and humbled himself. And I said, the Lord declares to you that, that, that the God that you are, uh, the, the, the word that God has spoken in the scriptures that you are denying is the self-same God who spoke to me the truth about your situation. And what happened was that one day he got in an argument with his mom. He loved his mom. He didn't hate her. He loved his mom. He got an argument, said some nasty things to her, bad things to her. He left when he returned because she was severely ill. She was found dead. So it struck him. And it, he, he collapsed. You know what Jesus did? 
He said, this is in effect what Jesus says, your law of attraction is trash. He gives life. He gives life. And if you would have turned to God, or if she would have turned to God, God is able to heal and he's able to make whole. And look at what the demons have done for you. Nothing. Right? On one occasion, this one is another cool experience. I remember I was out evangelizing, passing out tracts. There was a young uh, teenage boy who was coming out of high school. Um, the bell rang and he was walking home. And it was a hot summer day. And uh, I I, um, I see him walking. I say, hey, uh, by any chance do you have a few minutes to spare? I'd like to talk to you about the Lord. Um, do you believe in God by any chance? He says, you know, it's interesting that you ask me that. He says, to, he says, I used to believe in God and I had come to doubt him. And today I heard my science teacher teach on evolution or Big Bang or something like that. He says, I lost my faith in God. I don't believe him believe in him anymore. I've been dis, I've been convinced that he doesn't exist. I said, "Oh." And at that point I was going to use the traditional approach of using apologetics defending the existence of God by arguments, which is pretty cool, but the Holy Spirit said, "Stop. I have something that will convince him." I said, "Okay, Lord, what is it that you want me to share with him?" And the Lord said, "Tell him that his mother is a drug addict, has lost custody of him." And um, he's now living with his grandma and he's trying, and his mom's trying to get rehabilitated and that uh, he's also really interested in cars. I said, hey, I know this sounds really crazy, man. I don't know you. It's the first time mentioning you, seeing you. I said, but the Lord is showing me that uh, you're living with your grandma right now and your mom's actually a drug addict, lost you, lost custody of you, trying to get you back. She's currently in drug classes trying to regain you back and you actually really like cars. He's, he felt like so exposed. He just looked at me crazy. I said, is that right? He says, yes. And so at the end of the matter, I preached the gospel to him. I asked him the question. I said, do you believe in God? He says, yes. So uh, he went from not believing in God to not believing in God to believing in God in all the same day. <laughs> so it's like the devil gave him a blow. The Lord just threw a blow right back and knocked the devil's tactics out. <laughs> So that was a really cool experience. Um, um, it, it is um, God. <coughs> it's like Peter, he said when they uh, healed the man, he says, why do you guys marvel by our own piety or godliness we made this man whole? He said, it's by G the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's by Jesus having been highly exalted by the Father... That he ascended to the right hand of the majesty and high, told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to wait until at Jerusalem that, that we be endued with power, so that if we are endued with power, we would have power to become witnesses to the Lamb of God who was slain. We need power to be witnesses. We need knowledge and we need power. That's what the kingdom is built upon. And it's because the Father highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. So every time we operate in these signs, guess what it means? Is the devil is defeated. You know why? Because when we walk in signs, we walk in power, we walk in casting out devils, we walk in words of knowledge, uh, speaking in tongues or prophecy or any of these things, 
or even just the boldness to proclaim the gospel to an unregenerate person is all once again an indication that Jesus conquered every principality and power and he now reigns. And because he now reigns in power, he gave his church power. That's what it means to walk in the power of the kingdom. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me. Acts chapter 2 was the fulfillment of Joel, Joel chapter 2. In the last days, saith, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Old men dream dreams. So guess what? He doesn't have respect for uh, gender, and he doesn't have respect for age. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Both men and women alike shall have prophetic encounters. But that's the thing. Are we being filled with the Holy Ghost? Are we being filled with the Spirit? We have to continually be filled with the Spirit in order to pour out the Spirit. Jesus poured out the Spirit to us that we may pour it out unto others. As it says in Proverbs, He that waters, waters others shall himself be refreshed. And so it's a very refreshing experience as we water the soils of people's hearts. One man plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. And so, <clears throat> I'm going to um, close in this. Why does it matter? Why does prophetic evangelism matter? Well, well, the reason why I believe prophetic evangelism matters is because, once again, it's biblical. As we have seen through the numerous amount of scriptures and passages, and we see that it's effective, right? Um, you know, let me, let me share one more testimony. It's not my testimony, but it's a testimony of a man named John, Sean Smith, who actually wrote a book entitled Prophetic Evangelism. And uh, he tells a time when the Lord told him to go into a, a, uh, I think it was like a new age shop, um, and and not to buy anything. And see, already people already get like they get scared of that stuff. Like, ooh, like God, who? Why would God tell you that? Well, why did Paul go to the marketplace to the idol markets? Why? See, that's the thing: is evangelism is dirty work. You have to go where they're at, and that's an uncomfortable thing a lot of times. Not to go do what they're doing, not to go chill with them, not to go, you know, hit a blunt, not to do you know any of that stuff, not to go get drunk. We don't do that. We're going there because we're going to shine the light. That's the purpose of going into the trenches, not going in the church house, going in the trenches. That's why I think a lot of times evangelists just like to keep preaching to the church folk who keeps giving them applause, and they don't want to actually contend for a revival in fear of uh, causing a riot. We either get revival or riot, or we get revivals in a riot. Amen. As as evangelists, that's what happens. And so, um, but he went into a New Age shop, and and he said, "Okay, Holy Spirit, uh, what?" Why do you have me in here? What do you want me to say? Who do you want me to speak to? He said, there's a lady that has a business and she does tarot card readings and, and this and this and that. And he said, tell her that you are her sign and that X, Y, and Z. There was a number of things that the Lord had him share. And she was blown away. And check this out. 
everything he said was on point. She said, how did you know all of that? And when he shared it, that day, right there in that New Age shop, she renounced New Age, gave her life to Christ, and she was continuing to walk with the Lord faithfully. A witch! On the spot! See? You, and th- that's the power <coughs> of, um, of, of witnessing. Just, just uh, this week... I believe it was. No, last week. I, I went to the store and I, I spoke to a, a lady at the register. As I'm speaking to her, the Lord says, uh, you know, her, her best friend betrayed her by getting with her boyfriend. I was like, ooh. <laughs> I was like, ooh, that's a that's a detailed word I have to share, you know? And um, I shared that with her and the Lord began to show me other things and she, she began tearing up. And she said, you know, how do you know all these things? I said, the Holy Spirit. And that that Holy Spirit wants to have a relationship with you. And that's where I began to preach the gospel. This is where prophecy has to lead. And this is the point I forgot to make. Has to lead to gospel. So the prophecy and the words of knowledge are a platform to then get to the gospel message. The gospel message is this. Jesus Christ died for your sins, young lady. And he loves you. And the relationship I have with him, he speaks kind words to me, he wants to have with you. But you can't have it right now because you're in your sin and you love your sin and you love darkness. But Jesus wants you to come to love the light. And he loved the world so much that he gave, that the Father gave his only son, died on a cross so that you may have everlasting life. And what that means is this, that you've broken God's law. And as a consequence of our breaking of, the breaking of God's law means death. And hell. But God so loved this world. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked. He don't want you to go to hell. He doesn't have any desire in the death of the wicked. But he wills for all men to be saved. So therefore I plead with you. Come to Christ. Be converted. Jesus died. Your your breaking of God's law that necessitates death. Jesus tasted that death so that you may live. He lived righteously but was condemned as guilty. You lived unrighteously and ungodly and unholy, but you can go away free as if you've never sinned. All because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so you know what that does? The truth that they know that you shared with them about their lives, they know undoubtedly that what you are now saying is also true. So they're like, I'm going to go to hell without Christ? You knew all this about my life and you knew it was true. It is true. I, I, my conscience bears witness. So now you're sharing this message with me. These signs confirm the truthfulness of the message. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 2. I got to repent. I got to get, get right with my maker. Oh Lord, have mercy upon me. Oh God, a sinner. And then it's at that point, they're convicted of sin, as uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25 says. The secrets of their hearts are laid bare, and they say, surely God is among you. God the Holy Ghost is in you. And I want that. And so, this is the power of, of pro- prophetic evangelism. And so, why, why does it matter? Because it depopulates hell. It depopulates it. 
and it populates heaven. Let, let us real quickly turn to Luke chapter 14. <coughs> you guys being blessed? Very much. Praise the Lord. Luke chapter 14, <clears throat> verses 15 through 24. I want us to see the Father's heart. Because we have a guest. Thunder sister. <laughs> She's going to roar with thunder. <laughs> On this message. <laughs> okay, so. Verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, <coughs> Blessed is the one who eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Just like today, right? Excuses why they can't come to Jesus. Oh, you know, this, this, and that. The first said, I have just body filled and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the, his master. Notice how these are pretty important things, right? Like oh, oxen cost money. Marriage, you kind of only do once or hopefully. Right, but the, when it comes to the kingdom and entering the kingdom... God's main priority is for you to enter the kingdom. And it's pretty hard when you got a lot of wealth in the world. I'm not just talking about finances. I'm talking about if you place wealth on all these other things. That's why it's the down and out, the broken, those who really don't have anything, who come to the end of their lives and say, you know what, I'm poor in spirit. I'm naked, miserable, blind, wretched, and naked. I need a Savior. It's at that point that a lot of those people come and, and convert to Christ. And so... <clears throat> he says, The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What did he say? Did he say go out into the churches? No. So, in other words, look, and, and we live in a technological age where it's better to preach the gospel on the internet and in the church. Why do we keep trying to fish in the same pond in the church? At least use other means, even if you got to give someone a call to preach the gospel to them. Let me tell you this amazing example of how someone got saved by a phone call. There was a, a prophet, a mighty prophet, who the Lord gave him a phone number, a phone number, and the name of the person who had that phone number. He says, the Lord told him, here's a phone number, I want you to call him. His name is this, and he's a millionaire. Very detailed. And he calls him, and he has a strong African accent. He says, brother. And <laughs> he, he, 
he calls him, he says, uh, your name and last name is this, and um, the Lord gave me your phone number, he told me you're a millionaire, he told me that your life is devastated and your life is crumbling down. Well, just through that exchange of a phone call, he preached the gospel to him, he got saved. He repented of his sins through a phone call and a prophetic word. Isn't that amazing? So, um, the point though is, hey, if you got to do a phone call, if you got to do online, if you got to do Instagram, you got to do YouTube, it's better than going up in the same old pond up in the church trying to win for lost people. It's the same 10 old people still raising their hands and, and saying, I'm just glad to be up in, in the church today, right? It's like, yeah, well, don't we want to add to the church? And I'm not, I'm not knocking coming and assembling. But remember, we're talking about evangelism, not fellowship. We're talking about evangelism. When we come for evangelism, we have in mind a certain audience. When we come for fellowship, we have in, in mind a certain audience. We ought not to be fellowshipping with the world. Right? So we come to the church for fellowship, encouragement, edification, teaching, worship. But we go to the trenches and the world for evangelism. Amen. So that's what he says. Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So <clears throat> it's kind of hard, right, to go po to poor people. Some t and, and I'm not showing prejudice here. I've worked at a homeless mission, so I know. And I lived on the streets uh, uh, a little bit as a teenager, uh, couch hopping and all that stuff, even sleeping on the streets as an addict. So poor people can stink. Oh, I'm not trying to be mean or rude. I'm just trying to say that as, as simply as possible. And guess what? It's kind of hard to be around people who have a stench. If I can be real. And our flesh don't really like that. And and uh, I don't care how sanctified you are. You kind of like taking baths, right? <laughs> you kind of like buying deodorant. Getting your favorite shampoos. And all that stuff. Don't sit here. And t even Jesus told you. You know, wash your face, put on some, uh, you know, oil or perfume, right? And, you know, don't make yourself look unnecessarily lacking in hygiene to show men that you're fasting or something like that. You know, so, <coughs> so th that's to say that they're a very challenging population. But look at right here. We're coming to a close. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out to the road. So, you know, I love that song. There's room at the cross for you. I love that song. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. There's still room. Isn't that what Jesus is saying today for to lost men? There's room. There's room at the cross that your sins may be blotted out. I remember when I first started going to church, I, I was raggedy, man. I was rough, and, and my persona wasn't very pleasant. I still had a hard mug on my face, and um, I smelled like alcohol because I would party the night before. Because I'd go to church on Sunday, I'd party all night, and Saturday I'd smell like smoke, alcohol, uh, had my clothes on the night prior because I'm coming over on a hangover just coming to church, right? And I remember there was these older sisters. I remember I got so offended. I w in church, I was about 
to literally ha give them a, my peace of mind and just like start blurting stuff out. I was that heated because they one grab tapped one on the shoulder and started pointing at me and started whispering, and I felt judged. And look, man, I'm I wasn't saved at that point, and I was going there because I was sincerely searching for God. I wasn't playing games in God's house. I wasn't doing that stuff. I was there because I wanted this stuff for real. And so why do I say that? Because um, the Father says, go, compel them. Compel them to come in. Don't Let us not do things that leaves them with the impression that they're not, they're not welcome to come here and get fixed and changed. You know? Now, it's one thing if you're really intentionally deceptive and, and deceiving God's people, and that's another thing. You got to go with all that. And we're going to boot out some wolves real quick. But the people who don't want to be wolves anymore, they want to be transformed, become a new creation, and become sheep, we have room for you. <clears throat> it says, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So those who were originally invited, a lot of the Jews and Pharisees, they were rejected. But look, at, he told them to go to the down and out, and he says, compel them to come in. And so what is prophetic evangelism doing? Compelling them to come in, so that the Father's house may be full, and hell may become empty. It says in Proverbs, hell has enlarged herself, the appetite of hell is never satisfied. Well, guess what? By the same token, the, the appetite of heaven is not, never satisfied either. Heaven still wants the last one. Heaven still wants men all to be saved. Right? Angels are still looking for occasions to rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance. And so, the most effective way, or one of, among the most effective ways I believe that is possible, is when we integrate uh, the gifts of the Spirit uh, namely prophecy, words of knowledge, with evangelism. Hence, we have the term prophetic evangelism.